Uh, thank you, Dr. Carson, for what you've shared with us thus far. Appreciate it. I was thinking if, if all we walked away with was those five passages, uh, we've been equipped to help so many. So thank you for that. I did want to, uh, so Dr. Carson doesn't have to give a shameless plug. I will, I will plug for him. If, if you're intrigued by biblical counseling and you want to study more, um, there's a whole online master's degree program led by Dr. Carson. Uh, you can go to gobbc.edu to study more of that out. And it's a great way um, to learn more, to get a master's degree in counseling, to move towards potentially certification. So I would, I would encourage those of you who are uh, wanting to do that to consider uh, studying with Dr. Carson. Um, we decided this year, instead of a panel, maybe we would do something more like, more like an interview, um, kind of a Q&A. Uh, just to hear from Dr. Carson. Again, he's got to fly out of here in, in a couple hours, so we wanted to sort of maximize our time with him. And I, I remember uh, Dr. Carson probably 10 years ago or more, Noble Hill Baptist Church invited you and I to, to speak on biblical counseling, and they were doing a Q&A, and, and I'm, one second before we go up, do you remember what you told me? No, I don't. You said... I'm going to let you answer first on everything. <laughs> so now it's my turn. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> to ask you the questions, and you have to answer first. That sounds good. That's hilarious. You had, you had mentioned uh, that you were going to save uh, sort of your exposure to biblical counseling. We, a lot of us have stories we could tell of how we first heard of the sufficiency of Scripture um, that God's Word has answers to life's questions. So I'm just curious, you know, if you'd be willing to share with the folks, how did you come to understand sufficiency and this model of discipleship or biblical counseling? Yeah, I, um, I was in seminary, and the seminary I went to, actually is the one I teach at now, was Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary in Springfield. And they had an integrational program, they had an integrational a counseling program. Now, what's integration? Integration is where uh, they take biblical counseling or they take the Bible and add principles of psychology and they integrate those two to try to come up with some kind of, of system to help people. And so that's what they taught at that college, at the seminary at the time. And so I would go into these counseling classes that I had to go to uh, as part of the degree program and then I would go to my systematic theology classes and my exegetical and my specifically my Hebrew classes. And I would listen, I would translate and think through what does the Old Testament say in Hebrew. And then I would go to my systematic theology class about anthropology and uh, harmodiology, right? Sin and man and, and soteriology, salvation. And then I'd go to counseling. And what we learned in counseling had a total different anthropology than what we were learning from the Bible. And I just rejected it at hand. I said, this doesn't, I'd go out of class, my, my brain would hurt. Thinking how, why would we say this in one class, but in, a, in the Bible, the Bible teaches something different. And so I just rejected it. I wasn't rude about it. And I don't, I don't think I even told the professor. Um, but then... And I was at a local pastor as well. I was a senior adult pastor at a church. And so um, 
I just did pastoral ministry the way I'd watch my dad do it, and he talked to people using the Bible. And so uh, that was probably the two components, but I still didn't know what I was doing as biblical counseling. I didn't have any idea it was called something. I just called it being a pastor, right? It's people would come to you, I'd talk to them from the Bible. I remember you saying that somebody asked you, do you counsel? And you said, no, I don't counsel. I'm a pastor. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I didn't have any sense of what counseling was. Uh, when I was offered to teach, right? The, so the seminary, the seminary dean and the administration came to me and said, would you teach biblical counseling? They were going to switch. They recognized the folly of the position as well. And so they determined that the school was going to take on a new biblical counseling model. And so they asked, they actually came to me, my wife and I were, we were at the hospital, our daughter, it was our first daughter, uh, she was in the hospital, very, very sick, she eventually died, and the seminary dean came to the hospital and asked if he could talk to me. It was time sensitive that they found a professor, and so he, we went to a waiting room, he said, we've talked to your church already, and they've agreed uh, to let the school and the church both you could be a full-time employee both, but we need somebody to lead our biblical counseling. And that's when I said, well, I don't counsel. You're not, right? You're not, I'm not the guy for you. And he said, no, that's why we want you. It's because you do pastoral work. Uh, and I went to West, I applied at Westminster, started my doctoral program and still didn't know what biblical counseling was. Um, so that's why I say it chose me. I did not choose it. It was God's sovereignty that put me in this position. Right. So I was, you know, you know, as I ask you about your story and, and everybody, many people in this room have have a story. And I remember walking into I was a junior in that same undergrad that and, and Dr. Carson at that point was mainly in the seminary, but they, they kind of let you venture down into the undergrad and teach For a class, class or yeah. two classes. And so I was in methods of biblical counseling. And in fact, so, somebody this week was saying, why Dr. Carson? Like, what, what's he What's his skill set? What's he good at? And I said, well, this is what happened to me. I walked into class. He read the Bible. He explained it. And he applied it. And my mind was blown. Right? And, and it was that simple. But we really hadn't been, that hadn't been modeled to us. And it hadn't been taught to us. So my, my question for you, you know, as I think about early influences, that first slide, that, that first slide show you used had Mr. Pyatt up there. Yeah. So Mr. Pyatt was a huge influence on me. Obviously, you, you and your teaching were my first exposure to biblical counseling. But who became for you sort of those early role models as mm. you were learning what counseling is, what it's about? Well, let me first mention Bill Pyatt. Mm -hmm. uh, his son, Jeff, and daughter-in-law, Sharon, are here. Uh, Bill and Marianne, he, he made an incredible sacrifice. He had a heart. For biblical counseling. Bill was uh, part of the work at Faith Baptist in Lafayette. He had been trained with Bill, uh, Dr. Bob Smith, uh, which was the, one of the earliest uh, deans. I call him the dean of biblical counseling. Uh, Bill had trained a lot with him, had trained a lot with others at Faith, uh, Bill Good, and he had a heart for it, and he had graduated at Baptist Bible College. And so when he heard that we were making a transition, he reached out to me just to see if he could provide any help. And I met him for the first time, actually in a parking lot, spent two or three minutes with him, not long. We were going to see each other again in Chicago at a conference, and I said to my wife, 
when I see Bill Pyatt, I'm going to ask him if he'll come here and help me. Mm. I had no money. I had nothing. I was literally talking to a man in ministry and saying, would you retire, leave your ministry, come to Springfield, help us build a biblical counseling program, and I can offer you nothing. My wife was so embarrassed. She said, you cannot <laughs> go anywhere and do that. And I said, but that's all I have, nothing. But I need him. And I, I talked to him in, in Chicago. His wife could not believe it either. <laughs> and would you believe by January they had determined to move and they moved with no promise of anything in order to get that started. So I think one of my early influencers, was, without a doubt, was Bill Pyatt because he came beside me as an older pastor, planted churches. He had already done a lot of great work and so he helped me practically. On the education level, it was David Pallison, Paul Tripp, Ed Welch. Those were the three biggest voices. And then Bob Smith in my life, Randy Patton, Steve Byers. I had no clue that these were the leaders. But in God's kindness, he, he allowed, I think he, they just saw me as some green behind the ears, young kid who had just lost a child. And in their mercy, I think they saw that I had the opportunity to be able to teach and train a lot of people. And so they just chose to, to build into me. And I have much greater friendships with those people than I've ever deserved, um, only to later realize that those were the leaders in the movement. It was just God's kindness. That's good. Thank you for sharing that with us, Dr. Carson, and being, being transparent about yeah. suffering in your own life. Um, you know, I kind of think about the attendees that we have at our mm -hmm. conference and a, a lot of us or a lot of us here th this afternoon are not probably pursuing certification for those, for those who are, if Bill Pyatt can become your supervisor, yeah, go for that. Good idea. Um, just so wise and helpful. And if you're in my breakout, I'm teaching something that Pyatt helped me with um, years and years ago working with students. But, mm. you know, I, I think I want to give the sense to people that counseling is hard at times. You know, it's simple, but mm. it can be difficult. So I'm curious, as you were learning and first, first starting, what did you find hard? Where did you struggle? Uh, that's a great question. I think Bill Pyatt, again, was very helpful to me. In the history of biblical counseling, the early days of the movement, Jay Adams was heavily influenced by Maurer and, and behavioralist. So that Adams was trying to put together, he was trying to take the Bible and say, how do I systemize this to help people change? And so it really had a lot of behavior. It had a high behavior emphasis. So the primary theology would be Ephesians 4, put off sin, put on righteousness. So when you talk to somebody, there was a lot of put off, put on. It was very behavior oriented. Uh, and that was the first generation. And Bill Pyatt had been under a heavy influence of that as well at Faith and Lafayette with, with Smith and others. Well, I had been trained by Pallison, Welch, and Tripp, the second generation, and they were they were really emphasizing the inner man. 
because from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so, yes, you're doing these behaviors that need to change, but we have to change the heart as well. That was in Jay's theology, but it wasn't an emphasis. Well, now it was an emphasis. So I learned that. So when I first started counseling, I went for the root. I went for the heart issues. I really, that's what I'd been trained in. That's where my brain went. I understood it. I wasn't good at applying it on the day-to-day level. Bill Pyatt, on the other hand, was really good with the application, but had not considered some of those heart issue stuff that I had learned at Westminster. And so really, and God brought us together and he helped me understand my deficiency and get much better at it. And then along the way, he heard me and we talked a lot about heart issues so that I think we've got a good balance. In those early days, I remember I had a a lady who had been coming to me because she said she was depressed. And so I was out of town speaking out of something. I don't know what I was doing, but I was out of town. She called me panicked and she was having a really tough episode. And so I called Bill and said, hey, Bill, I'm sorry to do this, but would you please see my counselee? Because she's the wheels have fallen off. And I mean, it's horrible. And so he does. I get back in town the next week. I'm going to meet with her. And I thought, oh, she met with Pyatt. So I need to go by his office. So I went in his office. And I said, hey, what was your take when you talked to my counselee last week? And he sat there. He's a very, very, very gracious man. He sat there quietly for a second. And he said, well, I think she understands heart issues. Well, that was, he really slammed me, right? That was a body slam. Because what he was saying is you've done nothing to help her practically change, but she understands theology of change, right? So he gave her good homework. And she started seeing progress. So I think that's where I was first, the weakest, is how do I take this Bible idea and make it practical? Because I had the Bible ideas. I just wasn't good at the practical. That's good. And, and do you think the counseling movement as a whole has struck a good balance there? or it depends who you read. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier with that 2 Corinthians 5 passage. You have to read people with discernment. Some people are going to be really good with the heart. Some are going to be really good with change, behavior change, and you're really wanting to hit middle ground if, as much as you can. So for those who are, who are interested in certification, maybe just... Because our conference, we're not doing track one, we're not doing track two. We, we just want to introduce people to ideas, equip our own folks, equip Christian leaders in the area. We would partner with some, somewhere like Bozeman if somebody wanted to do track one. Um, and I but, think they're doing track one over in Mobridge, Mobridge. too. Yeah. Are you guys doing track one, Jeff? Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, I misunderstood earlier. You're not doing track two. We're, we're kind of relay okay. I'm going to give Jeff a minute at the end of this to, to talk about his conference. Excellent. So, yeah, sorry, Jeff, to overlook that. But we would partner with Mobridge, partner with Bozeman if somebody wanted to seek certification. But maybe just encourage those who are interested, why, why, why should they? If they want to. We're not, we, we don't try to make it sort of a legalistic standard, like you should go be certified by ACBC. But. Yeah, I counseled for years and wasn't certified. I was training. Right, I was, people were being trained regularly, but I didn't have certification. Uh, so is it 
is it a good idea? I think it is a good idea to be certified for, let me give you maybe three reasons. One is because you're going to be on a track that many others have also gone down that helps you have a sense of, I kind of have an understanding of the process, right? I understand the goals. I understand the, the process that it would take. Um, so I think that's good because it, it gives you a general sense of how to do it. I think a second reason it's good is because you're going to, you're going to have accountability of an outside organization. I think it's always good to have somebody looking over your shoulder just to make sure that what you're doing is actually biblical. Uh, and then I think the mentorship process. The key part of certification is all the hours you spend with your mentor. And that's what you said. If you can get Bill Pyatt as a mentor, you're good. you've done well. I agree. It's, the mentor process is an important role uh, in certification. So is it necessary? No. Everybody in the church ought to be doing biblical counseling because, as I said last night in the first session, it's conversational ministry. We all should do that. We're all commanded to do that. Some of you ought to take the next step and be certified so that there is a voice of somebody who, let me give you a fourth reason. It makes you understand where better resources are, right? So you can become a point person in your church because not, right, cases aren't simple. Counseling may be simple. You're taking God's word, people, and circumstances, and you're trying to help them. The goal is simple. Cases are not simple. People are not simple. Lives are not simple. Um, and so it's good to have good resources. Right. And, and as we talk about certification, um, in our church, when we talk certification, we're usually talking about the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. You might hear, hear it referred to as ACBC. Um, so if that terminology is, if you're thinking state certification, that's not, that's not the path we're talking about right. here. We're talking about a, a biblical counseling organization that has some pretty rigorous, I mean, it's not easy to become certified reading requirements, counseling hours requirements, observing others counselor or, or counsel, um, two, writing yeah, two exams, two exams. So it's not, it's not easy, but it's doable. I know lay people who have done it. Um, without pursuing a degree. David and Teresa Johnson in our church have done it through pursuing a degree. So it's certainly doable for those of you who are, who are interested in and desiring that. You can talk to David and Teresa. They've actually shared their testimony on their process. Uh, so if you have questions, grab them. Dave was the one that came up earlier. They've got a breakout coming up here soon too. Um, on, the, on the other end of the spectrum, there, there's somebody here who... Um, is intrigued by biblical counseling, but this is sort of new to them. What's we talked books earlier? Oh, what's a what's a resource you'd put in their hands? I, I'm interested. I'm not antagonistic. I'm just I'm curious. I need to learn. I think if I only had one book I could buy, it's getting a bit dated, uh, but I think it's an excellent resource. It's the introduction to biblical counseling. Uh, by uh, John MacArthur, Wayne Mack, and the faculty at Master Seminary. I think if there is a one-volume book that talks a little bit about theology, a little bit about practice, uh, I think that's the volume. Uh, that's been very, very helpful. There's a lot of other little books. I think if you want a simple, a very simple taste, not simplistic, but very simple, Ready to Restore by Jay Adams. It's, again, it's a bit dated, too. Uh, new books, 
right? If you want to think about how it fits in a church, I edited a book with Bob Kellerman. It's, it's published by Zondervan uh, called, I think it's called Counseling in the Church. I don't remember, but uh, it's a couple years old. It's a new volume. It's got a lot of good authors. Uh, I think that would be a new one. No, that's helpful. To kind of switch switch gears a little bit, one one question, and, and it does tie in with counseling in the church. But one question we got a, last year was, uh, you know, I, I'm in a local church. I'm a lay person. My pastor is is a good pastor, preaches the word, but hasn't yet sort of captured a vision of Ephesians four type, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, so that they might speak the truth and love to one another. Mm. And so folks are asking, you know, what, what can I do as a layperson, not to just overthrow my pastor's authority, but to, to begin to shape and influence what yeah, ministry a, looks like? It's a good question. I think you just are faithful. Wherever God's planted you, just be faithful there. Have quality conversations. Don't call it counseling at all. Just talk to people. Be a spiritual friend. Ask good questions, get good information, give them good resources, right? Just do it where you're at. And what you're going to find is you're going to have more and more people talking to you. And along the way, uh, it's going to open the doors to probably influence the leaders of the church, elders or pastors. Um, But I don't think that has to be formal. It's just, you just do it, right? So you hear about somebody who's grieving, go have coffee with them. Listen to their story. Help them take the next step and the next step. You know what they're going to do? They're going to be evangelists for you. They're going to go to another person and say, oh, you got that problem? We ought to call Jim and see what Jim has to say. I I bet he could help us here. Or maybe Sally, whomever it is. And you're going to have a great influence and a great work. You just don't have to hang a shingle. And don't tell anybody it's biblical counseling. In fact, right, I'm a pastor I don't think my church even knows I have a doctorate. Uh, some, maybe some of them do. I'm not sure they do. My church thinks I do and I don't. So. Well, there we go. <laughs> so you can, you can, Kyle exudes it. I do not. I'm kidding. So the point is, I don't lead with that. I don't say, yeah, I've got a doctorate in this counseling business. Um, I don't tell them I'm a professor. I'm just their pastor. There's one girl I met with. She had incredible PTSD. She'd been diagnosed with that. She'd been abused in ways that just we wouldn't want to talk about publicly at all. Um, She had had a rough life. We met for a year. Every week, same time. And one day she's walking through the four-year church. And I said, oh, man, I can't meet for counseling this week. She's counseling. I would never do counseling. Oh, I said, forget it. I don't have time for us to get together this week. She said, oh, okay. Right, she didn't even know we were counseling. So we've been doing it for a year. So that's, I don't make counseling a big deal. We have a formal counseling ministry. Bill Pyatt is in charge of it. And Marianne works alongside him. We have a bunch of counselors in our church. People from the outside come in for formal counseling ministry. But in the church, that's not, we don't lead with calling it counseling. We just help people willing to talk to them. No, that's good. I remember seeing an interview, I think it may have been with Stuart Scott, and, and he, you were talking about sort of that transition of the school moving from integrated to biblical counseling. Yeah. And you said in that interview that 
the students caught the vision faster than the faculty. And for sure. I think that's sort of what you're getting at here at the local church level, like just do the work of the ministry and people see the beauty of God's plan in Ephesians 4 sort of infiltrating the body. And, right. and really you're coming, coming alongside your pastor at that point and saying, hey, if you've got somebody you think needs to meet with somebody, I'm, I'm here to help. I mean, I don't know any pastor that would be frustrated by that. So. Right. Um, but, but I wouldn't I would not maximize the word counseling. Right. Right. I would just say, hey, I'm happy to help people help you meet with people, talk to them, take them for coffee, see what we can do. Disciple them. Yep. Good. So we, we've both interacted with a lot of young men and women who sort of catch a vision for biblical counselors and they can kind of run with this information, almost beat people over the head. You know, we talk about cage stage Calvinists. Um, if you ever heard that term, you know, when somebody becomes a Calvinist, you got to lock them in a cage for a while. And we've, you know, we better not start telling stories up here because we, so there's, there's a, such a thing as a cage stage biblical counselor. And I think part of the problem with even the admin at BBC coming, struggling was, not what you were doing, but sort of the the zeal of young people that didn't know how to handle what they were learning with maturity. So what do you see? Like, help us, warn us some of the dangers of becoming a cage stage biblical counselor. Help us yeah. not to beat people up with I, the word. I think Dan and I were having a conversation earlier this week about there is a, there is a point in spiritual maturity when you realize that what somebody else believes at the end of the day, I'm not responsible that they agree with me. If I know the truth and there's an opportunity to talk about it, we may talk about the truth, but at the end of the day, no one has to agree with me, right? Because that's between them and the Lord, it's between me and me and the Lord. Uh, but I am responsible for speaking the truth. So I learned, right, as a professor, we have students come in and they're all over the place. Early in my years, it, it was my goal to have them agree with me. That's not my goal anymore. My goal is to at least challenge their thinking, to at least talk about it. And I don't even have to say, I don't even, it doesn't have to be a challenge that's in your face. Just share truth. And as you share truth, that's going to be challenging enough for them. If they agree with me at the end, that's fine. I had a girl come in about a year ago, two years ago. And she said, I want you to know I disagree with you. This was the first of the semester. I disagree with you, and I'm going to use the paper in this class to prove you're wrong. She had a cousin at Liberty. They're integrational. So she had a cousin at Liberty who was going through the counseling program, and she and the cousin were going to take me on. I said, that sounds great. I, hope, I said, this is my only goal. I want you to be a learner. So we went through the whole class. December, she wrote her paper. It was, um, I remember reading it, but it was nothing spectacular. And first day of school in January, she was in my office. As I was, I get there early, but as soon as office hours kind of were starting, she was there and she said, I just want to start the semester by telling you I was wrong. Please forgive me. She said, what you taught has changed me, even with my poor spirit. But if she agreed or didn't agree, that was not my goal. My goal was just to say what was truthful. Um, 
And at the end of the day, the Lord will handle her. I think grace is this way in sanctification as much as it is in salvation. No one will get saved without God's grace operating in their life. Grace woos us. God calls us. I think it's the same thing for sanctification. It says in Philippians 2, it says that we are to be obedient, but it says, but it's God who is doing the work in us. And so we just let God do his work. If they agree at the end of the day, that's great. If not, God will handle the people that disagree. How do you help young people handle what they're learning with maturity? Um, they're, they're, they're not disagreeing with you. They agree with you, and they're right. sort of taking what they're learning. And I think a lot of times I tell them, if you've heard me say something different, you can remind me what I've said. But I think a lot of times what I tell students is just listen with grace. Realize you can learn anything from any person. Uh, you don't have to convince people you're right. You don't have to convince people they're wrong. Right? Just learn it. Apply it in your life. Begin to live it in your life. And as you have opportunities, share it with other people. But don't become an evangelist. But right? it's for, the, for a particular position. Just because... Right on the Matthew 7, it says, don't give what's holy to the dogs. Don't, don't give it. I take that text to mean do not try to convince somebody against their will that you're right. Um, let God do it. There were, I remember this one girl, this one lady. Uh, she, was, she was a professor. She was absolutely 100% against biblical counseling. She had been trained in the world system, very much trained in it, uh, without giving you lots of details. She did not appreciate when the school chose to bring in biblical counseling. I didn't, I was just kind. Never said, you know, we disagree. I didn't do any of those things yet. She was against it and was vocally against it. Until in God's timing, one of her teenage kids had a major problem. She took that teenage kid to the Pyatts. The Pyatts helped her. That lady's position changed. That's God changing the lady and changing the son through the ministry of the Pyatts, and there was no outward. But it wasn't my goal to change her toward counseling. The Lord took care of that. No, that's good. And one thing we were talking about this week was helping people differentiate between sin issues and wisdom issues. So... Yeah. Let me tell a story and then you can you can tease out sin sure. versus wisdom. And uh, I've told this story to our church, but the small group setting, uh, a family member of mine struggling to conceive, which is heartbreaking. Many of you have been through that. Um, he's pouring out his heart in a small group and a guy that you and I both know and love and has since matured and would not say this today, but he looks at my brother in law and says, well, you need to tell your wife to just quit worshiping idols. <laughs> I'll tell you what Tyler said. Maybe you can tell me what you would say. My, my, my best friend Tyler said he should only be allowed to read the Psalms for an entire year. <laughs> so that's sort of what I have in mind with cage stage guys. Like everything sin, help us navigate those waters a little bit. 
differentiating sin and suffering sin and, and yeah, wisdom issues. I think it's what I was saying yesterday that, right, parakaleo is to encourage. That's used many more times than nuthateo. Nuthateo is only used 18 times. Nuthateo is our word for handling sin, right? It is more of a confrontation. It is admonishment or a warning. Um, so I think if you have any kind of system that overemphasizes sin, you're out of balance because the majority of life is suffering. People come in, I don't even mention sin lots of times in counseling, not because I'm against mentioning it, but because the issues of suffering are very broad. I think when you see Job, God never confronts him over his sin in that in God's chapters, God never says, Job, you're a sinner, repent. God just presents truth about the universe and about his character and about um, a, a broader perspective than what Job had. And at the end, what was Job doing? He was repenting. He says, oh, forgive me. This, I can't believe this. But then it says in chapter 42, but I am angry at you, friends, because you didn't speak what's true. Um, I think probably there's a lot of examples we could use. Mary and Martha, when Jesus is coming in, remember in John and 11, when Jesus is coming in, Lazarus is dead. First Martha, then Mary both approach Jesus. They both essentially say, had you been here, he would not have died. Now they weren't saying that with great faith. They weren't saying we accept you weren't here, and in your sovereignty our brother died, but if, if you had, he'd have lived. No, they were saying, you jerk, why weren't you here? We sent for you. Our brother's dead, and it's because you didn't bother to come. Right, you got to read it with the way it's being said. And Jesus doesn't say to either one of them, loser, if you'll shut up a minute, I'll go resurrect him. Right, I would want to say that. Jesus knew he was going to be resurrected. I'd have been like, girls, knock it off. If Show me where he's at and let's get on to the next thing. No, he was gracious and kind. He wept at the unbelief of the people that were there. And for the girls, he showed compassion to them. He showed incredible kindness. With Peter, incredible kindness. He didn't confront Peter. He said, do you love me? Three times. I think that's really instructive to us. We need to learn uh, to have a, to see the big picture, to see that God is more willing to forgive people than we are. God loves people. He sent Jesus as a demonstration of it. Um, he's patient with them. Like Job, and again, I think there's several examples, but with Peter, with the girls, he is more patient with the suffering person than a lot of times we are. And he deals with sin. Yes, he's going to deal with sin, but that's not where he starts. Look at the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman. Right? She's, he doesn't start with the fact, you know, you, you are really wicked. I mean, you've all these husbands and now you're living with somebody you're not married to. No, he starts talking with water. He says, well, why don't you give me, if you knew what kind of water I had to offer, you would be happy to receive it. 
I love Jesus's mercy and compassion. Um, I think legalism comes easy. So we have to keep our eyes on Jesus to realize there's more than just legalism here. Right? Jesus is about a real relationship, and that relationship will produce change. But I don't have to lead with change. No, that's helpful. You went to 1 Thessalonians 5.14, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, uphold the weak. And Pallison says, if we're probably better at one of those three things than the mm. others. Yep. He says, if you're, if you're an admonisher, you're a, you're a hammer and you think everything's a nail. If you're an encourager, you're a blanket and you think everyone needs to be covered. And so I think it's probably wise for us to kind of figure out who we are kind sure. of by personality and be willing to do whatever doesn't come naturally when the situation calls. Yeah, that's good. Calls for. So you wrote a, you wrote a chapter in Counseling the Hard Cases mm. on homosexuality and and you've spoken to that some even even this conference. So I, I don't want to I don't want to go necessarily to a specific topic as much as give us some give us some help in terms of those situations where we feel in over our heads. Mm. Well, that's a good question. I, I think there is a process you learn, of, and a couple of key questions you could ask. The, I've already given you the one key question. Regardless of, of what the person is dealing with, you can ask yourself, what is the next step? Right? What does this person need to do that's just going to help them be one more step closer to Christ-likeness? It could be breathe. Right? In some sense, uh, if somebody comes and, and you have concern that they're going to take their life or they're overwhelmed with grief, right? we just need them to live till the next time we meet. I don't have to know the big picture. I have one simple goal. Let's see if we can keep you alive. That, so, biblical, right, so you don't have to think, well, I'm a biblical counselor. I need to have this giant biblical goal. No, I don't need to know the key issue as long as everything I do is biblical. Once we get to the key issue, it'll all come in alignment. Right? It's, it's, I'm fascinated with the spine and the way all of the muscles work and all that stuff. Right, if you're in alignment, whatever you do, it's okay. It, right, it's gonna it's gonna be helpful if you can keep everything aligned. The same thing I think with counseling. If you're doing things, you don't have to be the wisest person in the person in the room. You don't have to understand it all. I certainly don't. But if I'm just doing what's biblical, it may take me longer to get there than other people. But we'll eventually get what we'll eventually get there. I mean, I've had long counseling cases. Uh, the history of biblical counseling kind of was this six, eight, ten weeks and be out the door with them. I don't know where those folks are. I'd spend a year with folks and two years with one. And it was over a year before one of my counselees was even willing to trust me enough to say that her granddad had abused her sexually. And when she said it, I could only, she was so emotionally broken, I could only catch about every four words. We had counseled for a year. For her, I had said somewhere along the way, I will not walk away from you. You're not going to do something that's going to make me walk away. Well, she tested that constantly. She said the ugliest things and hateful things, and it was just persevering with her. But over time, I didn't even know what the issue was, much less know how to handle it. 
I just knew there had to be more than what I was getting. So, big point. What's the next step? That's a simple question. For you, understand this is all, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is a common demand circumstance. I just need to be faithful walking with this person in it. Point them toward the providence of God, trusting God, and walking with them, and we'll get there. Right? I don't have to understand it all. I need to understand what's right in front of me today. Uh, uh, Paul Tripp used to say it this way. What has this person gripped right now? So you may sit there and listen to him and say, well, this person doesn't understand one thing about sovereignty. No wonder they're a mess. That may be in your mind, but the mess is what you need to deal with, not the sovereignty issue. Right? You need to help them so they're full of anxiety. So let's help them with some anxiety. Let's, let's take a step that direction. As we start working on the anxiety, what? We're going to have opportunities to introduce sovereignty, to introduce a lot of things. So I don't have to get, I can understand there's a much bigger issue that needs to be dealt with. But today, I need to be human. Let me just take one second on that. The girl I told you about, I talked to her for a year before I even knew what really had happened. <clears throat> She gave a criticism of the ladies at our church that I took very personal and have had to work on. We've worked on it at our church. Her criticism was that in the life groups at our church, a lady would be so excited to help her that she would jump to the answer before she showed compassion. I think that is that's a great critique. And I said to her, I said, well, you understand what's going on here. It's not that they're not compassionate. It's that they know the answer. And they want you to do better. They want you to feel better. They want life to be better. So they're jumping straight to the answer. When they miss the part, I'm sure it was in their heart, but they missed it coming out of their mouth. I am sad that you're going through that. Right, this is, that is tough. No doubt this was very difficult. Now let me show you a verse. <clears throat> they just went to, oh, let me show you this verse. Right, I think, so I think that was very helpful to me even in my counseling. Yeah, and I, I like the way you sort of honored the people's desire. It's a good desire they have. Right. What they can work on. Uh, coming at that with sympathy and, and empathy towards the person. One thing you said to me uh, a long time ago that helped me and gave me some courage in the, in the midst of those really difficult situations is that if you point them to Christ, you can't hurt them. Right. And I've always remembered that you're not going to hurt anybody if you point them to Christ. You know, you may not, you may need to bring in another counselor. You may need to bring in an elder. In fact, I want to speak to you in a minute, Dr. Carson, about when do, when do we know to sort of run these things up the ladder a little bit, but you're not going to hurt them if you point them to Christ. Right. Um, so along those lines, you know, we've not just bringing in another counselor, bringing in another elder, but we've got a, we've got just an awesome young lady. I, w I can't wait for our, our church to hear her entire testimony, but she's at Vision of Hope. Mm. And uh, she she's growing. She's benefiting from being there. We miss her like crazy. We just wish she was here. Um, and we have one of our girls who's a counselor at Vision of Hope right okay. now. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's exciting. That's cool. Yeah, we'll have to see if they 
work with yeah, them. Next I'm sure week, they do. Next week I'll be there. Okay. Awesome. So that's exciting too. So my question is when give us some just I know you can't speak to every issue, but just some wisdom and mm-hmm. when do we reach towards even outside sources like something like Vision of Hope or even governmental authority involving police or a hospital situation. Yeah. Like, just help us. I think so there's a, the, so you mentioned a couple of different options. Sometimes the level of care someone needs is greater than what a local church can give. Right? You need somebody embedded right you need a life life embodiment change. So so like Vision of Hope uh there isn't anything they say at Vision of Hope that y'all couldn't do here. But if it takes essentially 24-hour care to get them moving Y'all can't do that here, right? And so they have this ministry. There's multiple of those ministries. There's one uh, not too far away in Iowa, um, restoration ministry there. They have these ministries. You can you can become part of a living context where sanctification is encouraged. Sometimes that's just what people need. We've sent individuals to those different ministries. Um, and maybe Sunrise, Sunrise at someday may have that kind of ministry too. And that's fine. That's sometimes it's just very helpful. Um, in terms of hospitals, if you believe that someone's going to potentially hurt themselves, if they're speaking and acting in ways that are very abnormal and you have concern, if it's, if you walk away from a conversation or think about walking away from conversation and the thing that is, most pressing is I am really concerned about this person's life and health or the life and health of somebody else because of this person, then you need to act, right? You don't need to, there isn't anything a hospital is going to do that's going to hurt them. They're not going to help them possibly. And by that, I mean, they're not going to say, you know, you really need Jesus and they're not going to point them towards sanctification They're going to come back on meds. They may have a new label. But all that stuff you can deal with. The first point is life and health. And they may find something at the health level that's very helpful too, that physically needs to change. Uh, It could be a thyroid that's really way off, right? There's various things like that too. It could be a brain tumor. So, So I am not hesitant to send someone to the hospital. We've done that straight out of a counseling room. Right, call the ambulance. Let's get this person to the hospital. I've driven them to the hospital um, multiple times because the hospital is there to help. They're not going to hurt them. They can't hurt their inner man. Uh, so it's just a matter of, of getting them the help they need. With police, we are mandatory. If, if we know something's going on that is sin at the abuse level, we're especially related to kids. We have no choice. We, we can't love God and neighbor without involving the police. So we must do that. And the state actually makes that kind of easy by making you a mandated reporter right. where it's sort of, it's not up to me to figure out what's true here. I've, I've heard yep. something. We I've, don't call balls and strikes. Right. We just do what we're asked to do. Back, I, I want to circle back to, you know, you're talking about this girl who was suffering and she needed a, a, a friend that was willing to be a friend and, and sort of earn the right to speak in that sense. When you're constantly dealing with 
with problems. You know, we all, we all know what it's like to look at caller ID and think, oh, here we go. Like, how do you, how do you protect yourself from becoming hardened, jaded, mm. um, when, you're, when you're constantly working with others that are, can sometimes be difficult? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, I think, right, this sounds super spiritual, but I think part of it is you walk with Christ. Because Jesus doesn't get tired of us coming to him. In fact, he says, come unto me, all ye who labor and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. So the day that Jesus isn't willing to receive me is the day that I need to be not willing to receive sufferers. Right? I just think the, the more you observe Christ, the more we can be willing to walk with others. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing you can ask God is to make your heart tender. I was a senior adult pastor for years before I got into biblical counseling, before we planted Sunrise. Um, and I've sat with, I don't know, loads of people at the hospital in their homes while they died. Everybody in the room was crying. I was saddened. I'd grown up in a pastor's home. I knew what it was to walk with people. But I would sit in there thinking, man, everybody's crying in this room but me. Um, it would be good if I could cry with those who cry. Um, well, the Lord made it possible. The Lord providentially put me under the kind of pressures that changed the way I responded to suffering people. So God is faithful like that. I think if you struggle with suffering people, Right? I don't, do you pray and say, Lord, change my heart, help me be tender, uh, but you trust his sovereignty. He may do something that really changes your heart. Um, and I'm thankful he did that. Right, It says, count it pure joy when you fall into various trials. I went through the trial of my life, and when I came out on the other side, I find it very easy to cry with people now because I understand the significance of suffering and how God uses it. Um, so it gives me lots of patience with people. One guy at our church, he says, you have Teflon grace. It seems like no matter what happens, you just still give grace. It just seems not to impact you. Or I just realize how much I need it. Right? So the more I'm aware of my own sin and suffering, the more I can be patient with others too. Um, yeah, I think some of those things. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And I, I did want to press into patience a little bit because, and you've been speaking to this throughout the question and answer, but sometimes when we're preaching or teaching biblical counseling, we tell a story in, in four minutes that ends with this incredible mm. success story, you know, and it's, right. I, remember, I remember my first counseling after be, um, when I was trying to be certified, I'm like, man, this is not like moving like I like I thought, it's supposed to be like a five-minute thing. You see the purpose of life. You see the sovereignty of God. And now you're sanctified. But I, I wasn't realizing as, as I'm hearing those stories from you, Mr. Pyatt, and others that, man, some of these are taking years to develop. And so maybe, you know, we just got a minute or two. Maybe just encourage us uh, on how to be patient and be slow with people. I think in the First Thessalonians 5, it says to be patient with all. And who's the model? Jesus is the model. God is our model. 
Um, God takes sometimes a lifetime to help sanctify people. And we know that we won't be a finished product until we get to heaven. So if God who is holy, righteous, just, if he is pure, if he can put up with us in a lifetime, then surely we can be patient with other people to grow and change. You can't, there's no reason to be in a hurry, right? It's just walk with people. They're imperfect, but you're imperfect. I think you lose it. We're going to talk about self-counsel in a bit. You are going to be the most impatient when you're the most unaware of your own sin and struggle. The more you're aware of your own sin, the more you're going to be willing to be patient with others. Now, let's be honest. Some people will try your patience. Some people will push. They'll be rude, right? I'd get hate text occasionally from people. Uh, one girl, I remember she said, you are the source of every problem in my life. <laughs> right? Then I reminded her, well, you married me. No, <laughs> a different girl. <clears throat> Different girl. <laughs> no. So, right, that's not true. This girl had all kinds of problems before she ever came to me for help. Right? All I've done was be available. And now I'm the source of every problem in your life. What's she doing? She's just trying to, she's just testing. Right? That's why, what do we have to do in Colossians? We have to come dress for work. Right? As beloved as the elect of God we have to put on all of those characteristics of Christ in Colossians 3, uh, 12 through 17. Because if you don't come dressed for work, you're going to sin against people. And so it's a matter, even that first, the second Peter 1 passage we went through, I need to add to my faith virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, patience, or perseverance. Perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, love. I've got to put that on every day. Because I'm going to need it every day. And the day you don't, you're going to sin against others. And, and then when you sin, admit it, seek their forgiveness, and move on. One of the hardest, I've sinned against counselees, and I've had to say, you know what, I just sinned. Please forgive me. Um, because it is possible. Uh, there are some people, right? I think I've got a great mentor with Brother Pyatt. He is steady and patient always. I'm not always that way. Uh, but when I'm not, you just have to admit it and move forward. One thing I, I, I'm hearing as you're talking about that girl that said that really harsh thing to you is that you, I, I don't know how long this took, but you eventually saw her in relation to God instead of her in relation to you. And Yeah, I've, I, you know my response to her. When she sent more than one of those, but she said that she said that in person actually. But she sent text messages that were equally as ugly. And whenever she would send something like that, I would just reply back, "Sounds like you're having a rough day. I'm just going to stop and pray for you." That was my total response. There's no reason to go down that road. There's no reason to be offended. Um, again, how much have I done against Christ? A lot more than that. So, just respond in kindness. Offer a way of, all she was saying is, help me. That's all she was really saying. So just help her and you move on. So you've been forgiven 10,000 talents, so you can choke her out for right. 50 denarii. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, that's going to have to uh, end our time. Thank you, Dr. Carson. That's really helpful.